Our scripture for today is Matthew 2nd chapter, verse 13 through 23. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and in the vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramai, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. When he had heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of God. On June 6, 1944, the Allied troops landed at Normandy in what we now call D-Day. Um, now, none of us listening to this, I think, are old enough to actually remember that through experience. We know it from history books or maybe movies like Saving Private Ryan, you know, the first 20 minutes of that movie is the landing at Normandy in graphic detail. But it's almost the unanimous opinion of historians that D-Day was the decisive moment for the Allied troops, um, that at D-Day, um, their ability to land, to make a beachhead and secure their position, was the day when it was sure the Allied troops were going to beat Nazi Germany. It was, it was a done deal. It was the decisive blow. Of course, we also know from history that that wasn't the end of the war, that the war against Germany didn't end until 11 months later in May of 1945 when Allied troops arrived in Berlin. D-Day was the decisive blow, but many, many battles followed in those next 11 months over those next 750 miles from Normandy to Berlin. And in fact, in those 11 months, there were more American casualties than the entire war beforehand. The fighting, even though the victory was sure, because D-Day had happened, the fighting was fiercest in the battles between that decisive blow and the actual completion of the mission when they arrived in Berlin. The same is true, as odd as it may sound, about the kingdom of God. As we've said in these last few weeks, we've been looking at the first couple chapters of Matthew in anticipation of the Christmas season. As we're here in Advent, we've been looking at Matthew at the arrival of Jesus in our world. And we've seen that Matthew paints it very clearly as Jesus as the arrival of the Messiah, the king over God's kingdom. And so in the arrival of this child, Jesus Christ, God's kingdom has come to earth. In a sense, it's like a D-Day invasion. This baby lands and secures his position 
in our world. Um, and his arrival is good news. It's good news for those of us who come to faith. The arrival in Jesus and his kingdom, though, is a profound threat to those who want to establish their own kingdom. It's a profound threat to people who want to oppress others. It's a profound threat, most importantly, to the spiritual forces of darkness, to Satan and his kingdom. The arrival of Jesus is the arrival of an invading army for them. Um, and Jesus makes it clear throughout his ministry, he sees it that way as well, that he has come to defeat the powers that hold us bound, to set us free from the power of Satan, the power of sin, the power of death, and the false kings and kingdoms of this world. And just like D-Day and the 11 months of fighting between then and the end of war with Nazi Germany, in our passage, there are fierce battles that pop up. Jesus arrives into our world, and the kingdom of darkness does not respond uh, <laughs> with joy. Um, and in our passage this morning, we actually have the first of our uh, of the lashing out against Jesus, the first of the counter battle um, from the false power of, in this passage, King Herod um, and his false kingdom that he had set up there in Israel. And our passage this morning is a very dark one. It's one that troubles us as we read it. And it should. It should trouble us. It brings questions and it doesn't resolve them. And it's the first indication to us, if we're reading through Matthew's gospel, that the arrival of Jesus, which is good news of great joy, we sing about that at Christmas, is going to be met with swift and stark resistance. That It's the first indication that the darkness will not take lightly to the light that Jesus brings. To help uh, get our minds around this passage, I've broken it up into two sections, and the first one's this, the empire strikes back. The empire strikes back. Our passage picks up in the middle of the action. We looked at last week when the, uh, the wise men, or the magi from the east, came. These foreign dignitaries arrived to celebrate the arrival of a newborn king. Uh, but they didn't realize when they came to Herod, when they came to Jerusalem, that Herod was a false king. And that his, his hearing that the Messiah, that this new king had been born, Herod wouldn't hear this with joy. He wouldn't celebrate it. He would respond with fear and suspicion and self-protection. And as we see in this passage, even violence, extreme, extreme violence. So look here at verse 13. It says, The Magi, have the, they, they gave those gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh to Jesus and his family, these incredibly expensive gifts, and they leave. And the Lord appears again to Joseph in a dream, and he warns him to flee, that he needs to flee from his homeland. Why? Because Herod, the king who reigns on a throne in Jerusalem, is going to seek to kill the child. Jesus and his family here are forced to flee, and it says even uh, that they fled in the middle of the night. Jesus and his family are forced to become refugees. They're running from the violence in their homeland to the protectiveness of a land 750 miles away. Um, and not just any land, <laughs> the foreign land of Egypt. This is remarkable. This is remarkable just because of the, the, the place that Egypt held in Israel's history. If you remember back, if you look back at the book of Exodus, um, you'll see that it was in Egypt, generations and generations and generations before, that the ancestors of the Israelites, the ancestors of the Jews, were held as slaves. They were held as under bondage in Egypt. And God's decisive 
victory was to, to bring them out of their bondage, to bring them to the promised land of Israel. It was out of Egypt that God had called Israel. As the prophet Hosea said, and Matthew quotes here in reference to Jesus, out of Egypt he had called his son. And that was the original reference for Hosea. Out of Egypt he had called his son Israel out of slavery. Yet now the darkness in Israel under Herod, the darkness had become so great that for Jesus and his family, Egypt was a place of comparative safety. And now in almost a great reversal, not almost, it was a great reversal, the promised land of Israel had become a place of bondage. The promised land of Israel had become Egypt. So that now the prophet's words of out of Egypt, I called my son, are fulfilled in reverse. Out of Israel, he had called his son to flee, to flee the destruction of the false king, Herod. But sadly, that's not the whole of it. Herod's fear and self-protectiveness turns to fury and violence. It says that he didn't realize that Jesus and his family had had fled, and so he decided to institute this kind of blanket program of murder focused in on little boys under two years old in the town of Bethlehem, in the very small town of Bethlehem. This is a tragic scene. Now, we aren't told how many kids were targeted. Um, we know that Bethlehem was a very small uh, city. Um, we aren't told how many, or we aren't even told if his orders were carried out. But it's very clear, it's very clear as we're reading, that the land of Israel has become a place of bondage and death. That the king of God's kingdom, Jesus, has arrived. Light has come into the world. But the place where he has arrived is a place of great darkness. In his second Old Testament quotation, Matthew quotes the prophet Jeremiah who was writing at the time of exile from the land. Now, I don't want to treat this like a history lesson, uh, but you know, almost 600 years in 586 B.C., the Babylonian Empire had defeated and conquered the Israelites. They had uh, taken the capital city of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and they took the Jews who didn't die in the war. They took them into exile. They removed them from their land and took them away. And in the process of taking them away, they had set up a temporary prison in this city called Ramah. It's a city north of Jerusalem. And so, uh, as Jeremiah talks here about um, the city of Ramah being this place of exile, it would have drawn up images, if I say Alcatraz or Rikers Island, uh, we immediately have images of, of a prison um, the same thing would happen for Jeremiah and then for Matthew, who's quoting Jeremiah with the word Ramah. This was the location uh, of uh, imprisonment for the people who were then taken from the land entirely to go into exile. And he talks about, and uh, the, the quotation from Jeremiah, it talks about it in a poetic style, and it speaks of Rachel weeping for her children. Rachel was the ancestress of uh, three of the tribes of, of Israel. The idea of her weeping over her children as they're being exiled from the land in 586 BC is one of an idea of, it's almost like all hope is lost. Her children are gone from their inheritance, that they are utterly defeated. 
And what Jeremiah, what Matthew is doing in quoting Jeremiah here is pointing out that not only is the land become a new Egypt of sorts under Herod, it's also become a new exile that Jesus is driven from his land. Um, it's like Jesus is experiencing here, as odd as this may sound, even as a baby in the beginning of his life, Jesus is experiencing the history of God's people in himself, in his own life, in, the, in a way he's taking on their history of exodus and exile, of bondage, of, uh, of defeat, of, of being refugees. He's taking it on to himself in this unique way. So the empire struck, by, struck back. Um, it's a time of incredible darkness, and the hope that would have dawned at the birth of Jesus would have seemed to have been extinguished. Imagine Mary and Joseph fleeing in the middle of the night after Joseph had just heard, just a few months earlier, that this baby was Emmanuel, God with us, that he would save his people from his sins. Well, now he's fleeing in the middle of the night with his young wife and this small baby to a foreign land. Um, it seems like hope is extinguished. But, like every wicked ruler that has ever ruled in human history, Herod is a finite man. Herod's days, no matter how oppressive and powerful he thinks he is, Herod's days are numbered, which leads us to our next section, Return of the Messiah. I couldn't call this Return of the Jedi. Jesus isn't a Jedi. Uh, So we'll call this Return of the Messiah. So a few years later, after this incredibly dark time, Herod dies, and Jesus and his family return to the land of Israel. But they don't return to Bethlehem, which actually wasn't their hometown. It's where Joseph's family was from. But they return to the hometown of Mary and Joseph, a city called Nazareth, which is uh, north uh, in the land of Israel, in, in the region of Galilee. Um, and this is where Jesus grew up into adulthood. This was his. Uh, this is the place where he, um, he he came into adulthood. This is the place where he grew up. In the last sentence of our passage, um, it actually looks like there's a third quotation. So Matthew says uh, that it's uh, him coming to Nazareth to be in Nazarene was the fulfillment of what the prophets had said. Um, But it's not actually a quotation, interestingly enough. He's not actually quoting any single verse in the Old Testament, any prophecy or anything like that. Um, There's no Old Testament verse that says, quote, the Messiah will be a Nazarene. What Matthew is actually saying here is that Jesus, being from the town of Nazareth in the region of Galilee, it fulfills a number of different things. Uh, And it, it, it boils down to this, that Jesus as Messiah as new king over God's kingdom, would be despised and rejected. And to better understand that, I think it might help us to understand a little bit about Nazareth. Nazareth was a very small town. At the time of Jesus, it was no bigger than four or 500 people. So very small. Um, and it was not held in high regard by anyone whatsoever. The region of Galilee was mixed between Jews and Gentiles. And so for, for Jews that had a lot of pride in their religious observance or Jews that lived closer to the capital city of Jerusalem where the temple was, people from Galilee were derided. They were treated almost as uh, not really <laughs> not really religiously devoted, not really Jews. Um, 
the region was, as I said, mostly despised. We actually see this in the New Testament if you look over to the Gospel of John. When Jesus first meets one of his first disciples in John chapter 1, Nathaniel, Nathaniel responds by hearing that the Messiah is from Nazareth with, with these words, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Jesus was despised and rejected just based on where he was from. It was seen as this backwoods, small town where nothing significant could ever happen. In pictures of the Messiah in the Old Testament, uh, some of them point out something that probably seemed very strange to the people of Israel considering the Messiah was supposed to be king. It points out that the, that the Messiah is going to face rejection. That Messiah, the coming king, is going to be uh, rejected and, and held in spite by others. I think the clearest one of these is probably Isaiah 53. Listen to these words and see how Jesus being a Nazarene from this backwoods, uh, a disrespected, disregarded place, see how that is fulfilled uh, in, in, fulfills what's said here in Isaiah 53. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. This is what it means when Matthew says uh, that it's the fulfillment of a prophecy that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. He would be automatically looked down upon just because of where he was from. Jesus probably had an accent <laughs> from Galilee that people from Jerusalem would automatically recognize. In all of this, I have to ask why. Why, why did Jesus need to be a refugee? Think about this passage. Why would the king of God's kingdom be driven from the land? Why would he need to be a refugee? Why would he need to experience rejection and dismissal? Um, not just later on. We know about the rejection and dismissal he, he faced at, uh, when he was executed on the cross. But here, even as a baby, why would the Messiah, why would Emmanuel, God with us, as it says in Matthew 1, need to face these kinds of broken things in our world? Well, it's because of this. In coming to us, Jesus is coming to the place of human experience. He's coming to the place of loneliness. He's coming to fear and rejection. He's coming to betrayal. He faces all of these things because these are the things that we face as human beings. As one of us, he faces the fullness of our experience. And in a sense, he, he, it's like he's collecting them to himself. He's taking them on his shoulders. And so in our world... Those of us who are forced to flee a situation, whether it be a political situation like a refugee or someone who's a victim of abuse who has to flee their home, Jesus knows that fleeing. He's taken it to himself. For those of us who experience rejection and betrayal by even close friends, um, we can know that Jesus is with us because he's experienced the same thing. For those of us who've been looked down upon because of where we're from, and are automatically dismissed because of our background. Jesus knows this. He's experienced it as well. For those of us who languish in, in, in unwanted singleness, for those of us who long for children but can't have them, 
For those of us who experience deep poverty and may be homeless, Jesus knows the places of these pain, for he was single, he was childless, he was homeless. In his life, even from here at the very beginning, Jesus goes to the, 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 thing, the places that we think are most painful and most shameful. He goes to the darkest places of our broken world and doesn't shame us for being there. He goes there with us and joins us in that brokenness. No dark crevice of our shame is, is, is off limits. There's no dark crevice of our shame that he doesn't take on. No point of our brokenness that he doesn't enter. To wear, again, to take it on himself, but not only to experience them. That would, be, that would be good enough news, the idea that God would arrive to enter to the darkest parts of our lives to be with us. But that's not all that's going on. With Jesus arriving, again, he's arriving as a new king, um, invading <laughs> the false kingdoms of this world, invading the darkness, the kingdom of darkness in this world. And so he comes not just to experience, but to overcome. He comes not to experience only, but also to win a victory. Because we are bound and broken in ways that we cannot repair. And in the final act of his taking on our world, in the fiercest battle uh, between that D-Day of his arrival and the finality of his victory, the injustice of his cross, where scripture says he became sin, he takes on the punishment for our sin, and at his cross, he passes judgment on our sin in a way that satisfies God's justice without swallowing us up. He judges our sin and judges it rightly by removing it from us and taking it on himself. And so he exhausts the punishment that our sins deserve. And so now we can stand before God in absolute assurance knowing that there is no more judgment for our sin because we have brought it to Jesus and he judged it in himself. And in maybe, there's even more good news, in maybe the best part of all of this, his resurrection from the dead, he also does this as one of us. Yes, he's gone to the, the, the deepest parts of our brokenness. Yes, he goes uh, even to take on the punishment for our sin. And when he rises from the dead victorious, and he's vindicated in his new life and his resurrection. He does that as one of us as well. And so our brokenness that he wore, our sin that he took on, the experiences of rejection and loneliness, he has overcome them and their ultimate power. And as he bursts forth from the tomb and new life, he assures us that this, this new life that overcomes death, that overcomes guilt, that overcomes shame, this new life is where God is leading us. And now we can walk day in, day out, the rest of our lives in the newness that Jesus brings. Our sin, our brokenness, our sorrow cannot have ultimate dominion and rule over us because like Herod, they are finite. They are a defeated enemy. You know, this Friday is Christmas Day. And I think for most of us, we'll be wrapped up in a lot of the stuff of Christmas, the food, the, the presents, the decorations, the, the fun of it. 
But for others of us, Christmas will also be more. Christmas will be marked by a sense of uh, mourning, of loss, of uh, longing, a sense of lost loved ones, uh, reflections on an incredibly difficult year. And so, for us who find ourselves in the middle of this joy mixed with sorrow, let's remember the God who has sought us out in Jesus to join us in our sorrow so that we can join Him in His joy. He wears our sorrow so that we can take His joy and receive it as a gift. And like the Allied troops in those 11 months between D-Day and the defeat of Nazi Germany, let's take hope and know that this victory is secure um, and that even when the battle seems fierce, even when it feels like everything's falling apart, which I'm sure it did in some of those fierce battles, that the victory is won. Let's pray.